0: It is called the Magna Carta of Spiritual Liberty. It is a book that continues to uh, challenge my thinking and my heart, and I hope it will engage your heart as we continue to uh, sense the the passion with which Paul wrote these words. Just uh, read verses 8 through 11 on page 1386 in the Pew Bible in Galatians chapter 4. However, at that time... Well, let's back up to verse 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we look into this portion of your word, we again recognize that apart from the Spirit who authored the words that we're reading. These are not just inspirational words, but these are words inspired by you, our God, through the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that the same spirit of truth would illuminate these words, helping us to see why they are significant, why they are filled with hope, why they are filled with a loving uh, questions and concern. And we pray, Father, that we might also take to heart The joys found in Christ in being known by you and in the glories of the gospel. Toward that end, we pray that you might uh, instruct us in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now imagine for a moment that you are a slave. And you are doing what slaves often are required to do. You are working hard not because you want to, but because you're being forced to labor day after day after day by an oppressive regime. You do not own anything. You, indeed, you are uh, facing only just endless days of work, exhausting work, and more exhausting work. All you know, is working for somebody else. And you and the five previous generations of your ancestors before you, they have been crying out to the God who made all things, and you've been asking for relief. You've been asking for this God to somehow give you the relief from these unjust sufferings from the hands of ruthless taskmasters. And then one day, a man who's about your age, claims that he has had an encounter with this living and true God and that this God has told him that he is to lead you and your people out of bondage and he's going to lead you and your people into a land of freedom, a land of fruitfulness, a land of blessing. Well, amidst a lot of skepticism, you were privileged to witness firsthand a miraculous escape from an army army that was hot on your tail, they were uh, following you and challenging you and chasing after you, an army that evoked fear from all the surrounding nations nearby. And that army was defeated by miracle. And so you join with thousands of others in celebrating and in singing, and you probably are like everybody else you lose your voice after a while you're just so happy you're so thrilled with joy you finally have made your escape and so you and your people are finally free free from slave labor free from oppression free from your own land free to own your own land you're free to go and pursue your own livelihood now imagine not too much longer after that amazing Incident, you have gained your freedom and you are not facing that kind of oppression any longer. You face a number of hardships as you're making your way into a new homeland. And you begin to hear within your own heart, perhaps, but you, among many people around you, you hear the comments widespread grumbling. Many people are complaining. Things are difficult. Even though you're free, you and your people begin to question why would we have ever left this life of enslavement that we knew for so long? Now imagine how perplexed the leader, your leader, would be to have taken the bold step to move away from those oppressors to actually gain liberation and then to have, soon thereafter, a number of people, not just a few, a number of them, lamenting their current problems, saying it would have been far better had we just stayed in that life of oppression. I think we ought to go back. Obviously, we're talking about Moses and the children of Israel, and that's the kind of image in my mind as I'm listening to Paul write this letter. I think he can understand and empathize with what Moses must have experienced. If you look at chapter 4, verse 20 of this epistle to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes, I am perplexed about you. What a statement. What an understatement. The Apostle Paul is at his wit's end because here are the members of these churches that he had come and he had brought them the good news of Jesus Christ. He is helped to point them to life in Christ. He has brought them out of spiritual bondage into spiritual freedom in Christ through the gospel of grace. And there they are. Now, at this point in their development, they have, he cannot seem to make sense why they want to abandon this freedom they have in the gospel and that they want to now go back into spiritual slavery, the kind of slavery they used to live in. He is scratching his head. Like, what in the world? So that raises some questions in my mind. What goes on in a person's thinking? What goes on in a person's heart that would cause them to exchange the privileges and blessings of the gospel for the enslaving dynamics of life apart from the gospel? Indeed, what does Paul say? If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, apart from the gospel, it's Paul that, he is so concerned about them, he says, listen, I want to urge you as my readers here, all the members of these churches, verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't think for a moment about going back into your old way of living. It doesn't make any sense. And So I want to raise some questions this morning as we look into this text of Scripture, and that is, first of all, what will encourage us what will encourage us if we, similarly to these folks, are tempted at times to begin to lose our grip on the gospel? We lose our understanding of the privileges and appreciation of all that we have and all that we enjoy, the blessings of the gospel. Somehow the awareness of that has begun to slip. We think we need something else, we, we need to go back to something that's going to make much more sense to us. How can we guard our hearts from a tendency to become enslaved by performance-oriented relationships with God rather than a freedom-producing, a grace-oriented status as being dearly loved, adopted children of God, enjoying relating to Him as our loving Father? Well, Those are the questions I want us to think about, and I want to look at the very simple little things that Paul says here in this text, beginning in verse 8. He says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. So the first point, I think, that ways that we can strengthen our grip on the gospel of grace is to remember. Remember our former condition apart from Christ. Now for some of us, that was not that long ago. For others of us, that was a number of years ago. For some of us, we don't know exactly what it means to have left that former condition, and we're still in that condition. And the condition we're talking about is slavery. You see that the people to whom Paul was writing, the Gentiles primarily is the ones he has in mind here now, these Gentiles to whom Paul wrote, at one time they worshipped, as did many Roman citizens, multiple gods. There was not just a Baptist church in town and a Methodist church and an Episcopal church and a Presbyterian church in their town. There was a, God to, there was a, a temple to Zeus, uh, there was a temple to Apollos, there was a temple to all sorts of gods. And each one was offered as a place to worship these multiple gods in the Roman pantheon. And these worshippers would oftentimes bring various offerings of food or wine or other sorts of, of gifts and p- try to persuade the the specific god of that particular temple to somehow show them favor as they look for that god to give them something they need. Bottom line, of course, was that all of those gods and temples that they went to were not true and living gods. They were just idols. They were just made-up gods. And they were going through the motions because none of these gods was capable of creating anything. None of these gods was capable of redeeming or rescuing anyone. And they tried, of course, in their own worship way back in that first century to measure up, to somehow find favor from the various gods, to somehow try to find that which would bring fulfillment and purpose and worth to their life. And that's why they're pursuing these gods. Unfortunately, you could summarize their whole approach in their worship was to say they were involved in some sort of sophisticated system of trying to be their own savior. I'll try to persuade this God to give me what I need so that I can reach what I desire and long for. You see, apart from genuine reliance upon Christ and sincere trust in Jesus Christ, the one who was fully God, the one who was fully man, everyone, everyone in the human race is cut off from God. This is said a time and time again in the Bible. It's a very common theme. The Bible says that even if you're religious, even if you're a person who practices various religious uh, uh, rituals, that you are cut off from a vital personal relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 1:21 says, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. We also read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 5, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then Ephesians chapter 2, and I encourage you to turn that, just a page or two to the right. Ephesians 2, page 1390. Look at verse 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 11 and 12, I'm going to skip parts of the verses, but I want to just summarize the gist of them. Beginning in verse 11. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that is, you're non-Jewish in your background, you were, verse 12, you were at that time separate from Christ. He's talking about how they used to live, what life was like for them. That one time they were cut off from Christ. They, were having, they had no hope, and they were without God in the world. You see, the pagan idols the Gentiles worshipped were not the true God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul explains that the things with the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not really to the true God. And all false worship is demonically inspired. The worship of an unbeliever is focused primarily on that which is created, the created world, because they're not worshiping the true God. They're not coming to God through Jesus Christ on his terms. They are coming and creating a system of worship that is built on the things of this world. And all idolatrous worship is merely trying to gain that which is aimed at Achieving our own approval or self-achievement through improving ourselves. That's really what all worship can boil down to. Trying to earn favor from other people. This is the kind of worship that many people, when they don't go to a temple, they, they worship in a sense themselves. And they say, well, what I'm trying to do in my life is to earn favor from other people, accumulating all the right stuff. And so a materialist, that's what he worships. Stuff. Other people merely try to find themselves earning favor by associating with the right people. If I get in with the right group, so that could be the country club crowd or, or the, 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 you know, the particular, uh, the cool crowd who, who the preppy look, you know, or whatever. People are trying to fit in with different groups of people. Other people are attaining the right physical appearance, so they're all about having the right appearance within their skin or their, their hair or whatever it is changing the shape of their body because that's the ultimate for them. They have then, therefore arrived. They've become somebody significant, somebody complete. And sadly, many people, of course, spend their lives very much earnestly and devotedly seeking to become the best in sports or music or academics. And they pursue that with all the passion they can possibly generate. The problem is that for unbelievers who look for ultimate worth and value by placing great effort toward all this self-improvement, the fact is it never really achieves what we want those things to do. It leaves us in this this incomplete situation in which, apart from Christianity, all other world religions do the same thing because they're built around self-improvement. It's about me becoming better somehow. And the emphasis is on self-improvement. The emphasis is on self-saving. And the net result is it's enslaving. You say, "What? why is it so enslaving? Well, you never do enough. You never achieve enough. You never own enough. You never seem to offer enough sacrifices to God. I was on the phone the other day with a gentleman who called the church. He was asking a bunch of questions about our church. It was clear that he was not interested in our church. It was clear that he was trying to find out how wrong we were as a church. And he said to me on the phone conversation, he says, I go to Mass every day of the week. And I thought to myself, why? What's the point? What are you going to gain by that? What does that get you? Why is it that you are so boastful about that. That's as if something that you've, you find that to be so valuable in your life. And I, I thought to myself, according to Romans 1, unbelievers who live a lifestyle of exchanging the truth about God, and we're not worshiping the God as he truly is, worshiping him as he has revealed himself, worshiping on his terms through Jesus Christ, then we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie that we've bought into. We've created our own God on some level. And as we worship and serve that created God, oftentimes that means we have put ourselves in the center of that worship. And the result is that that leads us into bondage that comes when God gives us over to self-focused desires of our hearts, leading eventually into impurity, leading eventually into degrading passions, which eventually now leads into a depraved mind. That's Romans 1. That's where our culture is today. Our culture is a worshiping culture. but It's a culture that's now begun to worship a lie, and they pretty much worshiping themselves. So life apart from Christ, if you really summarize it, and we're honest, is characterized by, on some level, different forms of despair, drudgery, I've got to keep going at it, I've got to keep doing it, I've got to keep times of doubt, constant demanding duty, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, leading us down a path toward ultimate damnation. And unfortunately, as we stay on that path, we do not enjoy peace with God. But for those of us who have escaped that path, those of us who came to realize we were headed in the wrong direction, those of us who began to see in our eyes opened and we sensed Christ drawing us to himself and realized how much we needed a Savior and turned from that kind of self-worship and now have learned to understand and appreciate Jesus Christ and what he did for us to rescue us from ourselves and our sin, we never want to lose sight of where we were. John Newton, the author of the famous hymn Amazing Grace, at one time spent, before he came to faith, later on as a a man in his adulthood, he had been involved in what one biographer described as the unspeakable atrocities of the slave trade. He was traveling all over the world. He was on these ships. And years later, when God had saved him by grace, gave him a new heart and a new calling, and gave him the privilege of being a preacher in a local church, pastor. It is said that he never forgot once where he used to be. He never forgot how God had rescued him from that hardness of heart and that foolish worship of himself and his own ways. And he displayed on the wall of his pastor's study a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. What was the verse that he had up on the wall reminding him of his years? It says this, you shall remember that you were a what? A slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Let me ask you something. Have you been redeemed? Has God taken you from false worship into the true worship of the living God through Jesus Christ? Do you know what it is to be set free by the payment of a price, of someone paying the price for you so that you might be set free? Do you know the profound blessings of being rescued from the bondage of vainly trying? And I mean vainly trying and trying and trying to save yourself. Trying to measure up, trying to achieve, trying to improve yourself, trying, trying, trying. trying. My friend, do you know what it is, to, the, the incredible joy it is to know? It's not about you trying, it's about you trusting in a Savior who rescued you and saved you and redeemed you by His blood and giving you a new life and a new identity. And So Paul says, listen, do you remember what it was like when that was your former life? For some of you, you say, well, that is my life. My friend, you can escape that and trust in trusting Christ. Paul then goes on to say another way that we can help strengthen our grip on the gospel is to reflect upon the guaranteed blessings, reflect upon the guaranteed blessings bestowed in the gospel of grace. Look at verse 9, the first part of verse 9. Paul says, But now that you have come to know God, and then he catches himself, or rather, to be known by God. So he talks here about sonship, not slavery, but sonship. Jesus announced at the beginning of his earthly ministry these incredible words taken from Isaiah 61. He said in Luke chapter uh, 4, God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. True freedom comes as we repent of our foolish attempts to improve ourselves, to somehow earn our own merit. True freedom comes when we trust in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. True freedom comes when we rely upon Jesus' merits alone and his completed work of redemption and atonement on the cross. It's his resurrection from the dead that is our hope of seeing our hearts changed and new life as a result. The gospel declares good news to us because of what Jesus has done for us and what he's paid for us we therefore gain acceptance before God on what Jesus did, not on what we're doing. We are set free from slavery and bondage. We are released from the indebtedness of that which we could never repay. We are gained the full rights and the full privileges of being a child of God. We share in the immeasurable wealth of Jesus' eternal inheritance. We share in Jesus' righteousness. We share in Jesus' life. We share in Jesus' peace, his wisdom, his victory over the forces of evil. May I remind you of the language of Ephesians 1, which is lofty language. It lifts you right up. You think you're having a, a miserable day, you ought to read Ephesians 1 and just sort of ponder that for a little while. It sort of takes you up into the heavenlies. And we read Paul saying that God the Father chose us, starts with God, He chose us to be adopted as His sons, verse 5, and He has given to us His Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance that we, we will definitely receive in Christ. And all this took place on the basis of sovereign grace. We didn't earn any of it. Now, you let that settle for a while, and you say to yourself, wow, that's what grace is? I came across a helpful new definition of grace. I've never heard this before. I was listening to a pastor the other day on a podcast, and this is what he said. You might want to jot this one down. I'll repeat it. Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. I'm going to say it again. Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. I like that. That's grace. Oftentimes, the system of thinking that we adopt on our own before we come to faith and sometimes even when we're in a life with Christ is what? Well God, I've got to do X, y and z so that I can find favor. No no, God is not an obligation to give you anything. God does not grant to those who do well, here's your reward, it's the exact, exact opposite. God took the initiative and on the basis of grace he bestows upon us through Jesus Christ the privilege of a relationship with with himself. And that's the point that Paul's trying to stress here. Verse 9. We are known by God. God reveals himself to us in the gospel. He draws us into intimate fellowship with himself. Now it's important to understand Christianity is not merely a philosophy. It is not merely some precepts that we acquire through meditation or some sort of mystical musings, and that's what you can boil it all down to. No, this is Christianity. Christianity involves the personal and dynamic relationship with the true and living God through Jesus Christ. Jesus describes the nature of this relationship, which is built on the foundation of grace, In John's gospel, when he said in John chapter 14, verse 21, he said, He who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. What's he saying there? He's saying, We will have ongoing communion and fellowship, we will do life together. It's incredible. Turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, and let's review an old memory verse. Folks, it's easier to forget these verses if you don't review them. And I know I get a little rusty on them. I can say parts of them, and then I find myself not saying them accurately. But page 911 in Jeremiah 9. Page 911, Pew Bible, Jeremiah 9. So many people in our culture, because they're so consumed with worshiping themselves or looking for fulfillment and acceptance from other people by their achievements and by what they can gain, look what, how God turns that on its head and reverses the whole point. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Most people what? They like that doctor on the front of their name or the Ph.D. or their degree behind their name, and they, they find that so much significant that they have this all this kind of scholarship that they've mastered. He says, let not the mighty man boast of his might. A person who is strong physically, who's in great shape, an athlete, whatever. No, don't boast about that. He says, and let not a rich man boast of his riches. That's what our culture does all the time. In various ways, we make our big boastings about people who are rich. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. It's the knowing of God. That, that's where you can say, man, I am privileged and blessed to, to enter into a, 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 the fact that I am known by God. Claire Ferguson once said, knowing God is your single greatest privilege as a Christian. See, the Christian life is an ongoing discovery and enjoyment of God. God willingly and freely discloses himself primarily through his word with the enabling of the Holy Spirit who illumines the truth that we learn about God, finding out what He's like, what He does, what His passions are, what He's committed to doing. And the Christian life is a long journey with God, enjoying Him, finding our hearts satisfied in Him. And surely all of us, if we're not careful, who have come to Christ as a believer, we can certainly tighten our grip on the gospel by regularly and consistently reminding ourselves who we are, and of what we have in Christ. That's why reading the scriptures is so fundamentally helpful and urgently needed. It is like what helps us gain a sense of refreshment in reminding ourselves of who I am and what I have because of Christ. As a believer, of course, we have a freedom to approach God freely in prayer open up our hearts to Him, and He opens up the Word and helps us understand who He is, and we need, of course, reflect on the grace of God, ponder our current status because of Christ. Colossians 3, we find that we're described as those who are chosen of God, beloved by God, loved deeply by God. Why? Because of Christ. Not because we've improved ourselves, but because of Christ. Colossians 3, verse 4 says, Christ is is our life what a blessing to know that and then first john 3 see how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of god and we are it's amazing that we're children of god the same god that we had defied the same god that we have so oftentimes betrayed and rebelled against we are his children by faith in christ by grace And we are, Psalm 100, we are the people of God's pasture. What a blessing to know that God is tenderly, affectionately, and committedly, he's looking after us, nurturing us, finding that we've got what we need, protecting us. He is our shepherd. We don't need to make ourselves beautiful or lovable to God. He already knows us. And in the gospel, he welcomes us. And he is well-pleased with us because of the gospel of grace. My friend, that's good news. That's the kind of news we need to constantly go back and feed our souls on. So that the things that we oftentimes are being encouraged to do to improve ourselves and to go back to the old system won't have such a strong pull on our hearts. Thirdly and quickly, I want to look at the last point here, verses, that latter part of verse 9 to Verse 11. Paul writes, how is it, (laughs) good question, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Point number three, we must realize the dangers of worthless and weak erroneous ideas which rob us of gospel freedom. And I think that every so often, we all can and do lose our grip on the gospel. In the sense of that, and I mean, that we revert back to simplistic and elementary ways of thinking, which were, are prevalent among people who are non-believers. We, we, we find ourselves going back into thinking things like we used to think, which are non-believers, Christian ways of thinking, and obviously we can be influenced by the people around us. They can oftentimes try to suggest to us things that we're not doing right or whatever, and other people, even more concerning than just people, is the troubling concern that Satan himself, this is one of his greatest strategies, is to try to rob us of the joys of the gospel, and he wants us to start thinking in the old ways we used to think. The foolishness, our own wisdom, So Paul, I think, detects in the desire of these Galatian believers who are adding to the gospel additional requirements that they must do now on a regular basis, these works righteousness. I think he says, I see in that the fingerprints of the evil one. He says, I see satanic fingerprints in this whole idea of different concepts and different ideas that you're slipping back into. The move backward from sonship Toward slavery is due to the devious schemes of the devil who is himself very miserable and he wants to draw you back into being miserable like him. See, these Galatian believers were being influenced, yes, by people who were false teachers, but also because of their own hearts who were slipping back into, I've got to do more, I've got to stronger. I put a greater effort in what I do here in order to attain full acceptance. And so they were thinking that their, their salvation would only be guaranteed if they observed all these Jewish traditions that were being told to them, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you got to celebrate this, you've got to go through this ceremony, you've got to do this uh, festival, you got to do all these things. Special days, celebrations. The problem with that is what? That all these special feasts and celebrations were shadows pointing to Christ. So if you keep doing them, you're saying, well, we're celebrating, we're celebrating, we're waiting for Christ. No, Christ has already come. You don't need to do all those anymore. They were shadows pointing to Christ. It's almost like saying, you know, if they've all been fulfilled, it's like saying, these are not going to help you. These are going to cause you to have more difficulties, more doubts, more sense of your duty, 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 you have to do more. It's like a person who's very much not able to swim, who's crying out for someone to help them, and instead of throwing them a life preserver, they throw them what? One of those jackets that you wear in the dentist's office. When you have an x-ray. Imagine if someone says, well, rather than throw you a life preserver that floats and will help you float, let me throw you a lead jacket since you're having a hard time swimming. That's what these people were doing. It doesn't help them at all. It's causing them to go under. So I would suggest you we would be wise to help each other and to also help ourselves with times of quiet reflection, which I realize in this culture, you have to work at that. You have to turn things off. You have to say, I want quiet in my life, and I want to think about what's going on in my heart and my soul. I find it helpful to take a walk in the morning. Nobody can call me. Nobody's going to bother me. Nobody's talking to me. Nobody's around. I don't hear anybody else talking. It's amazing. That works for me. Whatever works for you. But he says, there are some areas we loosen our grip on the gospel by doing this. Well, some of us, we draw the conclusion in our minds now. We go back to that elementary way of thinking. We say to ourselves, well, God is not going to love us until we get our act together. Hogwash. Hogwash. That's a lie from the devil. Others of us lose sight of Christ. We try to erase the shame of our sinful choices by more determined and more devoted performance of spiritual disciplines. All we keep saying to ourselves, i got to read longer, I've got to read 16 chapters a day, I've got to spend an hour and a half in prayer, i got to do this, i got to go Bible study, blah, blah. We just run ourselves ragged trying to do things for God. Somehow think that we're in boot camp, spiritually speaking. Many of us lose sight of who we are in Christ because we try to improve our image before other people by trying to impress other people in order to gain their approval. Rather than saying, I'm already approved in Christ, I don't have to impress those other people. Christ has gotten improvement from the approval from the Father, and I have that approval through Christ. So, what happens? If you're constantly trying to impress other people, guess what? You will never feel comfortable and never practice the helpful process of what? Confessing your sins before each other. If I would ever confess my sins, I'm trying to press you like I back to together. Others of us go to the opposite direction and we cheapen grace. In that we disregard the call to repent of sin, and we make excuses for habitual patterns of compromise, and we abuse the freedom that we are provided for in the gospel, on the, on the gospel based on grace in order to serve our own selfish agendas, in order to push the boundaries of what God permits and what God encourages. We sort of go our own way, go against God, and abuse the grace He shows us. That's called cheapening grace. Others of us, again, go to the opposite extreme. We, go, we say, well... We're going to resist the disciplines of grace, that is prayer and Bible study and attendance of, of, of uh, services of worship with other people, God sharing our faith. We're not going to do those things because we conclude that such consistent practices, if you keep doing them, they become burdensome and legalistic requirements. And so we're just not going to have to fool with all that. I are not going to enjoy grace. Meanwhile you're out there and you never get into the word, you don't know what God's trying to encourage you to fill your mind with, you're filling your mind with your own thoughts 24-7. And lastly, I would say some of us struggle when we slip into discouragement, and even some of us find ourselves moving toward despair. Because we're basing our assurance of salvation on the degree and extent of our hearts being set on God. Forgetting. That our assurance is built on how unshakably God's heart is set on us. We've lost sight of who's holding on to us, and we're thinking about we have to hang on for dear life ourselves. Let me stop, let me conclude with a brief story. While down in Ecuador, uh, back in March of this year, we had the joy and great delight of. Uh, Joyce and, and Catherine and I went on a zip line, uh, a course in which there were like 15 of these different zip lines. There's a, a wire uh, anchored to one end on top of a hill and it's going down across the valley and connected on the other side. And so I thought to myself, you know, there's two ways to do that zip line. You can take your bare hands and you can grab a hold of that line and you can just sort of, one after the other, just sort of make your way inching across that line. Now, how far do you think you're going to get? How, do you think, how far do you think I would get? First of all, it'll kill your hands, right? Maybe if you hold on for five seconds, your hands would be killing you. And guess what? You're not going to be enjoying that at all. It is what? Misery. You're not enjoying the view. You're not enjoying anything. You're dealing with what? tremendous fear because what if you get out about three feet you've got all this drop right in front of you. You're gonna get seriously hurt and let go and you're filled with pain, all that kind of stuff. Guess what we did? We got the prescribed harnesses that they help you step in, they belt you in, and it's got this little belt that now attaches to the harness to a little metal wheel. And they take that metal wheel and they say, okay, hop up. And so you hop up, they take that wheel and they put it on top of the wire. Secure it on there, and guess what? You're anchored to the wire. Got a wheel in there. Guess what? Sit back, relax, you got your helmet on, and away you go down, down, and you're looking at the, you're above the tree line, looking down on top of all these trees. Wind in your face, you feel what? Freedom. Freedom to enjoy the ride. Freedom in the security of knowing what? You are in this harness that's connected to the wire which is anchored on the two ends. You are what? I'm secure, I'm free, I'm enjoying it. What a difference than the what? Uh, 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 uh. The misery of trying to hang on yourself and do it yourself. It's all the difference in the world. My friends, let's count on and reflect on the wonders of where God has taken us from out of where we used to be, to where we are now, and avoid all of the simple old ways of thinking that often rob us of joy in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you with hearts, we agree, Lord, that easily become somewhat um, coarsened, or we develop um, a measure of callous hearts, Lord, that don't seem to celebrate and find delight and joy in you and being known by you. And our hearts, Lord, can easily become caught up in trying to gain approval from you or from other people, trying to improve ourselves, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to resist those tendencies to try to find ourselves and our acceptance in something or someone other than Christ. And I pray today, Lord, that you would take anyone who's here today who's never really been able to say, I know God, or I'm known by God through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them out of their own false worship, idolatrous worship from them, of themselves, and draw them, Lord, into a real relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, you'd give them grace to repent and to trust Christ instead of hanging on with their bare hands and feeling the pain and no, no sense of any kind of freedom, Lord. I pray that you would draw them into the glories of salvation in Christ. And Father, today as we gather before your table, I pray that we might sense a, a renewed wonder and delight and adoration remembering that we were slaves in bondage, and you have redeemed us with your mighty hand through your wonderful Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Lord, may our fellowship around your table be a time of sweetness, a time of finding satisfaction in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.